But let's read, um, let's read about the first five verses just so that we get a context. And then uh, I'll pray and we'll get started. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes of the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we can spend in your word tonight. I pray, Father, that, uh, that I would be clear and concise in what I bring forth as we get through the introduction of this book. Father, use your word to cleanse us, correct us, give us hope, uh, teach us your will, show us Christ, that we may conform to his image and we may be light and life to the world. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So in this introduction, I'm going to start with what has been a huge controversy in the church since the beginning when it comes to the Gospel of James, and that who wrote it and should it be received as Scripture, because we can't be sure who wrote it. So I'm going to give you my two cents on the matter, and um, you can... You can draw your own conclusions from wherever you read your, your, uh, get your information from. So when we're trying to determine the author of this epistle, we have three men recorded in the New Testament with the name James. Two of them were apostles. Because of the problem knowing the specific person being referenced, it's been uh, always an uh, been, there's always been opposition to it being in the text of the canon. So we have three people here. We're going to start with James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of the Apostle John, uh, from Matthew 4.21, Mark 3.17, Luke 6.14. Um, it's pretty easy to Google and get all the references you need on where the apostles are named. But it is doubtful that he's the one that wrote it because he was killed by Herod Agrippa in about 41 A.D. And it's assumed that this was written about 49 A.D. Actually, even that's its own controversy because it says from 49 A.D. to possibly 157 A.D. Wow, that's a real shot in the dark there. So now we have the second option is James, the son of Alphaeus, also one of the apostles, and from the same textures of Scripture, our text of scripture, everything I've read says that Paul in Galatians 1.19 and 2.12 is talking about James, the brother of Jesus, is talking about James, the son of Alphaeus. And the reason for that is James' mother is the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And by Hebrew tra- tradition, a cousin was often called a, a son or a brother. So because of the tightness of the family units, it was hard to tell which. And because of that, the inductive reasoning that comes into the commentaries just had me scratch my head and said, these cannot be the brilliant men that I've always thought they were. 
<laughs> because they were jumping through hoops to try to make this thing work. And all we need to really do is just take the plain text of Scripture and, and come up with an answer here. So it's likely that this James is also the James referred to in, Luke, in Jude 1.1 as being the brother of Jude. And I say that because in Acts chapter 1, verse 13, it also lists Jude. Now, there's five million different translations of the Bible. And half of them say that the last part of that verse, when it names Jude, some say the son of James, and others, like the King Jimmy, which I prefer, says the brother of James. So what you would end up with is actually James, the son of Alphaeus, being the leader of the church in Jerusalem because he's an apostle, and the apostles were given the commission to put together the New Testament church and complete the canon. And then you would have Jude, who was also an apostle, writing an authoritative book um, that is also in an epistle in the New Testament. So this way... If you, if you use that criteria, then the writers of the New Testament outside of Luke are all actually apostles. Well, Mark isn't, but Mark is translating basically for Peter. And Luke is basically writing for Paul and doing a history. So it brings authority back to Scripture. The third option is James, the half-brother of Jesus, which is where the commentaries all kind of went crazy because they're trying to say that this is the James, it's the half, or this the cousin. But when you look at the different scriptures in there that, that state that Mary followed Jesus, Mary his mother, followed Jesus around to the different places he went, and his brothers went with him. And then you have different texts that say, is this not the son of Joseph, and don't we know his brothers, and they named the brothers, and James and Jude are both in that category too. So there is some that believe that James, the half-brother of Jesus, not the cousin of Jesus, is the author. I'm going to stick with the, the, the more authoritative stand of it being the apostle James and Jude being his brother and it gives more contextual authority to scripture. But nobody really knows. What we do know is it follows the scriptural guidelines for authenticity and that it carries the authority by the message that it gives. It doesn't break scripture anywhere. That's why it was finally accepted. It's heavy on works. And that was where Luther and others had problems with it being into the canon. But when you look at the scripture from the viewpoint of works as a, a point of discipleship and works as being uh, led by the Holy Spirit to do things that are pleasing to God, it's, it's, it's different than works that you're asking for. Uh, at, like when you were a kid and... You wanted to please Dad. You went out and do, did something, so Dad patted you on the head or gave you a hug or decided to go out and play ball with you because you did something that pleased him. It's not that kind of work. This is a work where 
we trust in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We are disciples of Jesus Christ and of God Almighty. And the works that we do are works to prove before mankind our love and our obedience to Christ because Christ said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's the works that James is going for. So we're only going to get through verse 1. And that's because verse 1 is important to understand when it comes to uh, guidelines on how the rest of James will run. So we have James, the bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's important the way he separates that. To the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad, greeting. So bondservant we know is doulos. And this is a servant with no rights of their own. They're completely at the beck and call in service of the master. And this is not a degrading thing. This is actually an elevation of purpose and, and position within Christ to be his bondservant. So the position is both one established by the transforming of our soul and being compelled to service because of that transformation that we took. So when we were saved, we received a new man. The Holy Spirit resided within us. We became compelled to follow Christ. That's why when people get saved, say they get saved, but they continue to live in the world and there seems to be no repentance, no, um, no guilt over sin, I have a hard time believing they're saved. Because when the Holy Spirit was within, is within you and you have a new man, everything in your life changes. Your focus now becomes Christ and all that he has for you to do. So you're going a different direction. So in Colossians 1, 16 through 18, we are told, For by him are all, th- all things were created that are in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. We're talking Jesus Christ. And in him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. That's why we're considered, considered bondservants, because he has the preeminence. Everything we do is based on his commands, his desires, his will, his purpose, and we follow that through what we read in Scripture and through our prayer and our time in fellowship and hearing Scripture taught from the pulpit. All those things combine to drive us to this discipleship that is bond service. I think sometimes we get the wrong impression of what the free gift of salvation is. The free gift does not mean there are no strings attached, no obligations inferred. Even though the sacrifice was not our own, it was imputed to us. Our sacrifice, our service, our commitment begins at the point of that free gift of salvation. There are strings attached, but those strings are what we willingly desire. I was teaching in the prison this weekend, they're, they're so big on free will. And I, I had to address the issue. So my, my explanation of free will is we all have free will. 
the lost person's free will is always to do evil continually. That's from Genesis chapter 6. They hate God. That's Romans chapter 7. They're enemies of God. They want nothing to do with him. So their free will drives them to hate and be opposed to God. In Ezekiel 36, 22, when the Holy Spirit sprinkles them with clean water and changes their heart of stone to a heart of flesh, now they're driven, their free will changes because their soul has changed. Now they have the desire and the purpose to please God. They see their sin. They see their need for a Savior. They confess before God. They aren't aren't being forced to do it. They're willingly doing it because the Holy Spirit has changed their soul. So again, it's their free will. And that's what we're getting here with the bondservant. It's not that we don't have any strings attached when you get saved. You're not... You're not obligated. You're willingly submitting to it. Now, if we, if we continue to sin, God will chasten us. If we're, if we're truly believers, we can only get away with sin so long. And as a loving father, we're disciplined. He chastens the ones he loves. But we're doing it not out of obligation. We're doing it out of love and commitment. And that's where our, our slave status is uh, referring to. So in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, it says, Do you or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. This is God's command to your servitude. Is based on a gift received and a, 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 a reasonable expectation of service from the gift that you received. Matthew 6, 24 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You always have someone you're serving. We are never, we're never have been, never will be our own man. We're either serving Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that works, and the children of disobedience, or we're serving Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who died on the cross for our sins. That's the only two sides of the the coin. There's there's no other choices, no other directions we can go. We are always a slave, and from birth we serve the master. Uh, And we have and never will be our own master. Notice, when a child is born, we don't have to teach them to lie, steal, hate, all those things. They do that naturally. We have to teach them how to not lie, steal, and hate, right? So they're serving a master even though they don't know who that master is at that time. So the lesson of a bondservant is for you to determine who you serve and how well uh, and how willing you are to serve him. So that's where discipleship comes in, and that's really what James is going to get to here later on in this chapter and in, in chapters after. It's not that that um, they, they say Calvinists are all uh, robots. No, no, we aren't. And James is quite clear here that if you sin, you're doing it with your own free will. And if you don't sin, you're doing that in obedience to Jesus Christ, which, again, is your own free will. 
And, and that, that's going to be a big, whether you watch your tongue or don't watch your tongue, how you treat members uh, in the church, how you treat visitors in the church. These are all things that are our obligations to do because of who we serve. So James is saying that he is the bondservant of God. This is theos. This is talking to creator, sustainer. He's talking about God the Father, but as a whole, the triune God, the, the entire trinity. He was uh, saved by believing in Jesus Christ, but saved to service of God the whole, God head, God the trinity, the three in one. So when you get saved, you're, you're, you're serving under the authority of God the Father who decrees all things. You're saved by Jesus Christ who is the eternal redeemer, and you're filled with the Holy Spirit that gives us life. So you're, you're working in a Trinitarian uh, direction. He says, he's the bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are three really important words. So Lord, it means master, is kurios, which means master, the one who exercises complete ownership rights. So we say, well, we think God the Father has complete over, oversight and rights. Well, God the Father in Hebrews chapter 1 says Jesus Christ has those same complete rights. And here James, who I'm saying is the Apostle James, is saying he is a bondservant of God the Father and to Jesus Christ his master, the one who has complete ownership rights over him. And not only his master, he says, the Lord Jesus. Jesus is Yeshua, or Yahweh saves from the Old Testament. So we have, we have James saying that Christ is his master, and we have James saying that this is the same Jesus that was at the burning bush speaking with Moses and declared himself to be Yahweh. James is saying that's who he serves. Jesus, Yahweh, saves, and Christ, the, the anointed one, this, the, the Messiah. So this is called a pregnant fa- phrase, meaning it has a sim- it looks simplistic at first glance, but it has a very deep, eternal meaning, which for the purpose of this study, we're going to say the simplistic meaning of James saying that he serves God and his master, who he knows as Yahweh saves, who is the anointed one and the Messiah. So that's a pretty heavy phrase if we really dug into it. So this is who James says he's serving. And this is where it gets, we get the idea of where the scattering happens, to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. He is sending this out to the remnant of the Jews who have professed Jesus Christ, not to the Jews in general, not to the Jews just as a nation, but to the Jews who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. These are ethnic Jews in particular um, who have professed Christ, and they're scattered out from Jerusalem and Judea due to the persecution. Well, where did the persecution come from? For that, we have to go to Acts 
And that's what we'll, we'll finish tonight for our portion this evening. So we have to start at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. It says, And there was dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men of every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were, and were confused because everyone heard them speaking in their own language. So what he's getting at here, this is at Pentecost when Christ has already ascended. And he said, wait here, the Holy Spirit's coming, and everything's going to change. And it did at Pentecost when, when Peter gets up and preaches the first crusade, you know, in, in essence, is what he did. So he gets up there. The 12 get up there, they're all speaking in tongues, meaning all the men hearing them, all these, na- all these Jews from different nations have come together for the Passover. So you have a lot of Jews there, but they're from many different nations. And now they're all hearing in their own language, and we know they're probably from 12 different nations because there were 12 different languages being spoken, right? So we know at least we've got 12 nations. So that's why they're there. For the Passover, and that's why he had such a large group that he was speaking to. So Peter speaks, preaches the gospel in Acts 2, 36 through 41. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know surely that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In my opinion, the baptism they're talking about is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 39, For the promise is to you and to your children and to all that are far off and as many as the Lord your God will call. And when... And with these many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from the the perverse generation. And those who gladly received his words were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. The only reason I'm saying this is probably the baptism of the Holy Spirit and not a water baptism is because the closest water that they would have would be the Jordan that would be big enough for them to baptize 3,000 people on the same day, and the Jordan is 50 miles away from them. So I'm assuming, this is just my opinion, they're probably talking here of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and water baptism followed at some later date, some other way, um, if they could all get there. But the important thing is that they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know uh, anywhere else where they would have been able to get to water when the whole event started at 9 in the morning and, and Peter is speaking to them around noon and, you know, the, the, the day for them ends at about 6. So we're going we're gonna to say that, the, I'm going to say that this is probably the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Acts 1.8 says, And you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And that's what I'm thinking is probably what he's referring to. Acts chapter 3 now, Peter and John heal a lame man. And beginning in Acts 4, they are beaten and told that they're not to speak about the name of Jesus. I'm taking you to events for the scattering. 
So they're beaten and told not to speak in the name of Jesus, which they refuse to comply with. And this is really important on how we address ourselves before our government and our leaders and the different parts of society that we have to be a part of. So Acts 4, 18 through 20 say, So they called them and commanded them not to speak or at all or teach in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard. And that's tough in our society today because when I worked at the VA hospital, one of the things you sign and say you won't do is proselytize. And the way I got around that was, was informing everybody, if you ask me a question, I can answer your question. That's not proselytizing, that's answering a question, which got, us, got my shop and other shops into half-hour, 45-minute discussions of the Word of God, and they couldn't do anything to me about it because somebody asked a question. I'm just answering them. So it worked out great. I loved it. So, um, but we have to be careful that we're doing what is right in the sight of God and not just doing something out of our own pride and the desire to be a nonconformant. Acts chapter 4, we see the persecution rising in Jerusalem. So Acts 4, 1 through 4 says, Now as they spoke to the people... The priests and the captains of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So notice now that they started with 3,000, at Pentecost, now they're talking 5,000. The only thing we don't know if that means 2,000 were added to the 3,000 for a total of 5,000, or if you had 3,000 and 5,000 now for a total of 8,000 in the, in the city of Jerusalem who have come to believe in Jesus Christ, who all the leadership in Jerusalem says was not the Christ and, and murdered him. So this would cause them great grief because um, this thing is catching fire and it's getting bigger and it's, it's worrying those that were the murderers. So now we get to Acts chapter 5. We're only going to go to Acts chapter 8, so we're almost done. Acts chapter 5 says, it's talking about Stephen, and it says, uh, signs and wonders were being done by the apostles and the church is increasing even more. So Acts 5, 14 through 16. And believing, this is, this is really cool because well, all that we know about Peter, this really is interesting. It says, and, believe, and believers were increasing and added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick and laid them in the streets on beds and couches that at least a shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also, the multitude gathered from the surrounding cities of Jerusalem being sick and people bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now, we know from the last time I taught Matthew chapter 10 
that the authority of the apostles was being proven by their ability to cast out demons, heal the sick, raise the dead. Now you got people laying in the streets just so that the shadow of Peter passing over them would heal them. So you can see how the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, would really start getting nervous because they crucified the guy that they're doing this in the name of. So now things are starting to heat up. Acts chapter 6 and 7, we read of the martyr Stephen, one of the first deacons in the church of Jerusalem, who also did great signs and wonders among the people. Acts chapter 6 verse 8 says, Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen's killed in the street by those same godless Jewish leaders. That's Acts 7, 57 through 60. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ratted him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen, Stephen as he called on God and sang, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them, do not charge them with this sin. And then he gave up. He fell asleep, so he gave up the ghost. He died. So now you have five to 8,000 believers in the city of Jerusalem, and now you have the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the the religious leadership of Jerusalem now taking overt action against the believers and and it starts off by stoning Stephen in the street and Saul's important to that but we aren't going to go that deep into it finally we get to what James is speaking about the 12 tribes are scattered abroad that's Acts chapter 8 1 and 2 now Saul was consenting to the death of Stephen. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. That also goes back to um, giving weight to the fact that James, the apostle, is probably the, the one that is leading the church in Jerusalem because everybody left that church but the apostles. And the devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentations over him. So it took some time to get there, but this is important for us to understand the background the history that brought us to what James is talking about. So James... And the other apostles all stay in Jerusalem, and they're, they're running things from Jerusalem. Well, well, if you go through Acts, you'll see how Paul, more than anyone says, James sent people from Jerusalem to come and, and talk to them. Barnabas was a, a Levitical priest that uh, was involved in the first church um, in Jerusalem. And he's the first one that sold his goods and brought him and laid him at the feet of the apostles. He's later commissioned to go find Paul. But this sets the tone for us. So now James is talking to these Jews who basically are homeless. Once a Jew 
accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, they no more could buy, they couldn't live in their communities anymore. They couldn't buy from the places they normally bought from. They were basically excommunicated from Jewish society. And, and that's why when, when we talk about discipleship and the things that we don't really experience in America as far as persecution that they do in, in some other countries, um, we really have it good. Uh, there, there are many places that by the time you've, North Korea, you accept Jesus Christ, you are a dead man, period, right there on the spot. They don't even wait for a trial in some of these countries. You're just gone. You're done. We hear persecution is, my neighbor won't talk to me. Some ways that might be good. And in other ways, them not talking to you says, they see that you're different. At some point, God may prick their heart to come ask you why you're different. The main thing is to continue to be kind and and be willing to talk to them. James here is going to get in, immediately start getting into our trials and tribulations. And then he's going to go into how we conduct ourselves when somebody comes into the church. And it's all very important to the, the church's dynamics, and that drives us to our personal commitment. And I'm probably way over 20 minutes because I don't watch that clock. I just have a point I want to cut off. So, so I hit the cutoff point. <laughs> so I will pray for us now. Um, if you have a chance before the next time we meet, uh, try to get a clear understanding of maybe verses 2 through 4 because I'm, I'm hoping to at least get that far along the next time I teach.